0: Hello, long time no see. Right. So would you turn your uh, Bibles to Ezra chapter 4? Uh, we're going to look through a bunch of the text today. So I'm going to read out from the ESV. If you're using your, like your electronic versions, that's the uh, version that you want to select. So um, okay, some of you are aware that I haven't been around for the last year. I just came back almost exactly one month ago. Uh, me and my wife, we were in West Africa doing uh, medical and gospel work. And uh, among the people that I met over there, one of those couples that really inspired both of us, I'm going to call them uh, Ryan and Esther. And this is, um, it's a, um, they're an English couple in their late 50s. Uh, they're, they're kind of close to retirement. Their children are all grown up. And they left the UK to come and uh, live in uh, in the country that I was in, Sierra Leone, which is in West Africa, and they were living in in really quite difficult circumstances out in a village in the middle of West Africa and doing uh, a range of types of work. Part of it was uh, church-related work, disciple-making work, and the other part of it was trying to start up a vocational school to try and uh, train people to be able to uh, um, do some kinds of technical work and all of that. So they'd been there for about, I think about four or five years when we uh, went in, and they had had quite a difficult four or five years. Um, to begin with, when they came in, uh, after a couple of months, they had quite significant conflicts with their organization that had sent them. And so, big, you know, uh, conflicts about philosophy of ministry with their leadership, so much so that that they had to basically be, uh, to remove themselves from the organization and kind of supported themselves to do it. And then, apart from that, it was also you know, these guys had left quite comfortable surroundings to come and live in quite sparse, Environment in the middle of West Africa in a village, and they were beginning to have conflicts with the village that they were living in as well. And they, they weren't treated very well. Issues about their the, their land and rent, and at one point they were threatened with like these people around their house who were going to beat them up and set fire to the house and stuff. So so quite scary stuff. And if it wasn't enough to be kind of in conflict with your with your leaders as well as your uh, the people in the community that you're serving, um, it is also the amount of support that they were getting from, you know, their own community, their own church back home. Uh, When they're expecting, you know, a lot more, I guess, sympathy and support, sometimes it was, you know, just, you know, not many people know about what they're doing or where where they are or really not really caring much what they do. And the fact that they had difficulties with their ministry kind of fed back into this because the people back home would be like, what are you guys doing there for five years? You can fight with everybody and that's it, you know, you're quite useless don't to just come back home. And so they felt disappointment on multiple counts about multiple aspects of being in the ministry. And their experience kind of, I guess, highlights or magnifies an experience that I've seen among lots of different people uh, who've been in church for quite a long time. And so the experience is that of your reality, of your experience of church being quite different from your expectation of what it should be. And that means, you know, disappointment with with how ministry works out, you know, how much effort you put in and what actually comes out of it. Disappointment with the the leaders, the people who are supposed to be helping you and guiding you and enabling you, and yet you find that's a source of a lot of conflicts. Or, you know, kind of just a general disappointment of the whole experience of church. You know, the space that's supposed to be a source of life, actually being something that kind of just sucks it out of you. Um, And how do we deal with, That's what I'm going to try and look at from the text today, from Ezra 4 to 6. Right, so, um, now, a little bit of context. You know how I usually like to give the background, the outline and stuff before I start a sermon? Unfortunately, uh, Pastor Chiming stole this from me last week, so I wasn't able to do it. But anyway, I'm going to step on his toes and do a little bit of it one more time. So, uh, just kind of reminding you what happened, right? So, we are in a part of the Bible where before Israel has been uh, a nation, Uh, And they're kind of bumping along for a while, you know, good, bad. Finally, they got so bad that God uh, allowed them to be punished. They were exiled by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And much later on, a couple of, uh, like about 70 years later, there was another large kingdom, a large empire, the Persian Empire. And the king of the Persian Empire, Cyrus, he allowed these guys to come back from their exile, back to the land that they were supposed to be. And so they came back in three waves led by three different people Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah and uh, kind of three big things happened during the reign of these three uh, leaders so under Zerubbabel the temple was rebuilt excuse me, under Ezra the people were reformed, he was more of a preacher and then under Nehemiah the wall was rebuilt and the books that cover this stuff, you have the book of Ezra that covers essentially kind of from here to here and you've got the book of Nehemiah that talks about that and a couple of the prophets and other books take kind of some other uh, places along that timeline, right? So, last week as we started this series on Israel, uh, Pastor Cheming spoke about Ezra chapter 1 to 3 and the major theme he looked at is the people whose hearts God moves, you know, whether it be the king, uh, the people, it be the leaders. And this week we're going to look at Ezra chapter 4 to 6, right? Now, I'd like you to look at your Bibles for this, because I'm going to try something which we don't normally do over here, which is I'm going to try and actually read through the entire text from chapter 4 to chapter 6. So, it's a a lot of ground, but I'd like you to bear with me. (laughs) Okay, here we go. So, Ezra chapter 4, verse 1, okay? I'm reading from the ESV. So, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of uh, Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of the reign, of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So what's happened so far? So remember the, uh, the people of Israel, they've been kind of taken away in exile. And what has happened to that land in the meantime? Now, different conquering kingdoms did different things. So for example, the Assyrians, what they did is, if they took people away, they just took people away from the lands that they conquered. But the Babylonians did something slightly different. What they would do is, they take you away some people away from the land, but at the same time, they'd also bring in people from other places, resettle them on your land, and then kind of mix the people up, so that the remaining people would be weak and divided, and they wouldn't be able to mount a, a united opposition against the, the conquering kingdom. Does that make sense? Right. So these people, these current adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, these adversaries of the people, are the first mention in the Bible of what eventually became known as the Samaritans. So these are people partly descended from the original Israel and partly as a result of resettlement by foreigners in that land. People who kind of shared some of the bloodlines, shared some of the religion, but also had a lot of differences with them. And so they were saying, you know, we're, we're kind of related to you. We've kind of worshipped your same God as well. Why don't we join you in rebuilding this temple? And uh, Zerubbabel and, uh, and uh, Joshua say, nope, you can't do that. Only we are going to do that. Now, why did they do that? There are different theories some people think that they sincerely wanted to help, but when they rejected then they got quite you know mad and then decided to oppose. Some people say that the fact that as soon as they rejected they very immediately turned around and started opposing them shows that they were never very sincere in the first place. Well I, I, I don't know, but in any case they offered help, they rejected and then they became to oppose them in a much more concerted way in a, in a much more deliberate way. uh, And so, these are the people who eventually became known as the Samaritans. And uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, sorry, Artaxerxes, this is now the new king, the new uh, head of the Persian Empire, right? So in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and uh, Mithradath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. So this is the beginning of their letter, right? So this is who it comes from. Verse 9. Rehum the commander, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Iraq, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations, whom the great and noble Osnapar deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. Now, in my research behind the sermon, I discovered something that nobody else has found out so far. You won't find it in any of the commentaries. I discovered that the people who are now known as the Samaritans, these people who oppose Israel, right, were actually the ancestors of the Singaporeans. And how do I know this? It's because they were angry with with their neighbors. They wrote a complaint letter to the government, right? So... Anyway, so, we are actually in the Bible, guys, right? So, they write a letter in Aramaic. Don't worry, you don't need to read this. And it's translated into English. So, to Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, sent greeting. And now, be it be known to the king that these Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, be it be known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Uh, uh, Chapter 4, verse 14. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, In order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city, Jerusalem, this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to the kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That is why this city was laid to waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. And so... um, this is the whole you know, monstrous empire of Persia. And the king of Persia probably sits somewhere around here near Susa, the capital. And this is where uh, another book of the Bible, Esther, uh, is placed. But the deportees, the, the Israelites who were brought over to Babylon, have now gone back to Jerusalem. And the place is part of the whole province. They're just called the province beyond the river. And the people in that land right now, the Samaritans, are telling the king uh, over in Susa, you know, if you let those guys rebuild then you're going to lose all this territory because they're not going to submit to your rule anymore. And so that's what they write. And uh, chapter 4, verse 17. The king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of the associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made. And it has been found that this city, Jerusalem, from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, to stop rebuilding." to seize, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? And so they have written to the king, and the king says, you're right, these guys should not rebuild. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 23. Then when a copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at, at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. How long was that, that you know, period of it being stopped? It's a period of 18 years, right? So between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, that's the kind of time scale we're looking at. And think probably like half of you like aren't yet 18 years old, right? So it's, it's a long time. Now, remember who these people are, the leaders of uh, you know, Israel who are trying to rebuild. These are the same people that we read about last week in chapter 3. Now in the second year after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, so they came back in about 538 B.C., so in about 536 B.C., In the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of of Josedach, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. These are the guys who were in exile in Babylon, and the Spirit of God had stirred them. They felt that burden. They knew that what they were meant to do, their calling, was to return to their land of origin and to rebuild the altar, rebuild the temple of God, rebuild the nation of Israel. And they felt that stirring and they made the sacrifice and they moved. Right? From where they were comfortable all the way into this into this now quite desolate area. And they began to put their shoulder to it and began to rebuild. But this ran out of steam, and they stopped for 18 years. And 18 years later, chapter 5, verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Jerusalem, in Judah, and Jerusalem, in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of, of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. The same guys who started, who stopped, 18 years later, you know, the prophets of God come and say, start rebuilding, and they pick up their tools again and they begin the rebuilding. Chapter 5, verse 3. But Remember what happened the last time people opposed them, sent a letter to the king? Something very similar happens one more time. Chapter 5, verse 3. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozanai and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus. Who gave, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this. What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them, until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So again, similar to last time, Zerubbabel, uh, Joshua start rebuilding, the enemies oppose, the enemies send a letter. But this time, they didn't stop building while waiting for that letter to come back, Chapter 5, verse 6. This is a copy of the letter that Tatani, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shathar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timbers laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. Chapter 5, verse 11. And this was their reply to us. So this is what the Jews told the people, uh, Tatanai and their friends. And this was their reply to us. We are servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. Remember that story? That was Solomon's building of the temple, right? Um, Verse 12. But... Because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people into Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. Chapter 5, verse 14. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon and they were delivered to one whose name was Shezbazar, whom he had made governor. And he, and he said to him, take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site." Then this Shazbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that has been in Jerusalem, sorry, that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building and it has not yet finished. So what's happened so far? So now after Haggai and uh, Zechariah have told, have inspired Zerubbabel and and, uh, Joshua to begin rebuilding again the second time. So the opponents of Israel have written another letter to the king and this, But this time it also includes the Israelite side of the story because they say although there is one king who asked us to stop before that there was a great king, there was Cyrus who actually gave us permission to start Therefore if it seems good to the king Let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. So one guy says stop, another guy says go. I mean, which is it? So he's asking the king, just look at your records, figure it out and let us know. What is actually the instructions? What is the law? Chapter 6 now, verse 1. And Darius writes back, then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Medea, a scroll was found on which this was written a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt. The place where sacrifices were offered and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God which Nebuchadnezzar, that was the previous king that had caused the exile, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon. Let it be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God." And so Darius says, he looked and he found the record of that first king that said, Yes, let the Israelites go back and let them rebuild the house. And furthermore, uh, chapter 6, verse 6, Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, uh, Shethar Shethar Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, Keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. He doesn't just say, leave them alone. Right? He says, um, verse, uh, verse 8 chapter 6, verse 8, Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river, and whatever is needed Bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven. Wheat, salt, wine, or oil as the priests that Jerusalem require. Let that be given to them day by day without fail that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. So not only does he say, let it go on, he actively supports it with with, uh, the resources of the government. Chapter 6, verse 11. Also... I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it. He shall be killed on it. And his house shall be made a Dunghill. May the God who caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. So with all of this back and forth, Stop la, start la, I say stop la, you say start la, Darius says, that's it, this is it. I'm making a decree, cannot change anymore, full stop. Right? If anybody changes it, he died. Chapter 6, verse 13. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shathar Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo. They finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius, the king. So this is about 600 So they came back, remember, about 538 B.C. They started building about 536 B.C., stopped 18 years, restarted about 520 B.C. under Haggai and, uh, and Zechariah, and four years later, they finished it. It's about 516 B.C. Then what happens? Uh, ch- chapter 6, verse 16. And then the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered at the dedication of this house of God a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the books of Moses. And so this is not just a coming back to the land. This is not just a restarting of sacrifices, rebuilding the temple this is a restoration of the whole nation the way that it was supposed to be at the time of Moses, under the books of Moses, under the Pentateuch you know, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus Numbers, Deuteronomy, following the law this was a restoration of what it was supposed to be and not only did they restart the sacrifices they started all of the celebrations all of the national feasts that were, uh, th- that were prescribed in those books, so chapter 6 verse 19 On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. And so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated uh, himself from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship the Lord the god of israel now this is particularly in- important just for us to notice why because remember earlier when they started rebuilding the temple the people of the land came to them and uh, zerubbabel and uh, and joshua said nope you can't join us and it's easy to look at that and think these jews who came back from the, from the exile they're, they're they're quite they're quite racist they're quite internal looking they don't want other people to join them at all even though these people are kind of related to them, and they're offering to help, what? why, sh- why shouldn't they let them do that? And it's easy to, to believe that, you know, they're just very inward-looking and exclusive, not allowing other people to join them. But what this shows is that as long as these people, remember it makes a distinction between those who had returned and also from everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship the, the Lord. It seems to say that Even foreigners, if they're people who have given up their mixing of religion with other people, if they had purified themselves, if they had decided to worship the God of Israel, they they were welcome to join them, right? So let's go on, Uh, verse 22 onwards. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So so that was three chapters. Okay, we've been through uh, uh, chapter 4 to 6 of Ezra. Now what I'd like to do now is just turn your attention and focus for a little while on the leaders that we have in view here, Zerubbabel and, and Jeshua. Remember what their story was, right? They were in exile in Babylon. The Spirit of God moved them to come back, and began the rebuilding. And they did. They followed, they obeyed, they responded. They came, they started work, and then they stopped. And for 18 years, there was silence, there was nothing, and then God sends his prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And what do the prophets say? What the prophets don't say to the people of Israelis, Begin rebuilding. And these losers, these guys who started but couldn't finish, these guys who disappointed you, who let you down, forget them because I will raise up new leaders for you. I will give a fresh anointing to a fresh person, a new man who will come up to lead you to do my work because these guys are disappointments. They let us down. That's not what the prophets Haggai and Zechariah say. All of these mentions in Haggai and all of these mentions in Zechariah call out by name Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua. Call them by name and say, these are the ones that God has put His Spirit on. These are the ones That God has chosen to rebuild his temple. And it doesn't matter that they failed before. It doesn't matter that they stopped before. It doesn't matter that for 18 years they did nothing. These are the ones that God has chosen and has lifted up through his prophets to begin the rebuilding. Now, in this series of sermons we've got in the next couple of weeks, uh, I think... Who is it? I think it is uh, uh, Elder Shing who's going to speak on Haggai. And uh, Elder Shing and uh, Uncle Richard who's going to speak. So I don't want to step on their toes too much. But I want to step on their toes just a little bit. So I'm going to bring out just one of the texts from Haggai chapter 2. The word of the Lord... This is uh, Haggai chapter 2 verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying... I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. He speaks specifically to Zerubbabel and says, You're like the ring on my finger. You're the one that I'm going to use to perform this restoration. There are so many other prophets. You know, within the Old Testament that relate to the kings. You know? They say something to the people and the kings at the same time are, 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 are leading the people. And many of the times in the Old Testament, you'll find exhortations by the prophets to follow the law, follow the king. In the, uh, you know, the Royal Psalms, you've got a lot of mentions of God's anointed king. Follow him because he's God's anointed person. But very, very, very rarely do you find specific mentions of the name of the person to be followed. Except for in Haggai and Zechariah, because he specifically picks those guys—those losers, those husbands, those you know people who have failed before—and says, "These are the ones. People of Israel, follow them, because they will be my leaders. They are the ones on whom I've put my spirit. They are the ones who will restore the temple." And so. I don't know about you, but at least for me, you know, I've been a believer since like I was like 17, so it's about like 20 years. Um, yeah, that's probably the age of some of you guys, right? So I've been a believer for some time, and um, I know so many people who have been through ministry, right? Or been through some kind of burden that they felt for the church or for God's work in the world. And they have started, and they have tried, and then they have stopped. And then they have They've stopped because they've failed. They've stopped because they've forgotten. They failed because something else came up, which was, which just drew upon their time. And one of those people that that, that I remember all the time is this fr- this friend of mine. I'll just call her Margaret. That's not her real name. But for her, her passion, her burden, and this is somebody that I was with when I was in university. This is like two thousand to two thousand five. Her real passion was work among young people, among youth and young adults. And she would spend a lot of time doing like, uh, you know, like Bible studies and cell groups and meetings and outings and all these things with them. And some of you, especially those of you who are leaders here, right, you know what work with, with youth and young adults is like, right? It's extremely energy draining because these are like bouncing all over the walls, always want to do stuff, never want to leave your house one. They want to stay all the way until like midnight to do stuff. And then... You know, they, they always want to be in church, read the Bible, pray, you know, do this outing, that outing. It's as if like they don't need to sleep. And then this goes on for like months, but then something happens, and it's like a switch has turned, and suddenly, they just lost interest. And I, I'm i just more interested now in doing my canoeing club, or my like chess in school, or because I need to study for my A-levels. Or, you know, I'm going to NS, but I'll still kind of stay in touch with church, but then kind of after NS, like... You no, it just, and that's, it's crushing for the soul of somebody who's doing ministry like that. Because I saw that in her. Because what she'd say is like, you know, every, like on average every year I come into contact with about like 200 young people that I minister to in various ways within the church and in groups and stuff like that. But then after like three years, four years, maybe like five of them or 15 of them are still with us, the rest of us, have just kind of spark, fire, flash, and then pff, vanished. And that's very, very painful for somebody who's in ministry. And so for her, um, after a few years of this, she just couldn't tahan anymore, and then she she just stopped. Now, she didn't leave the church, she didn't become apostate, she didn't do anything else, she just decided to step back and decided she just couldn't do this anymore, just too painful. But there is a burden that God gave her, and she left it behind. And and that's 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 very painful. And is there a burden that you feel? Is that an experience that you identify with? Is there something that at some point in your life you were sure that God's given you? That you know that this is the thing that God's made you and put you on earth to do. This is the one thing that you're going to do with your life. And then you began doing that, or maybe you didn't begin doing that. And you thought, you know, I'll just put this off for for two days while I think and pray about it. And then your thinking and praying became like two weeks, and then two months, and then two years later you just kind of moved off into the side and fallen out of view. Is there a burden that you have failed to carry out? In this last year when I was in um, Africa, um, uh, me and my wife, we were working in this um, hospital in uh, West Africa, in Sierra Leone, and uh, so, so we were kind of doing like two major arms of work. One part of it was working for health system development within the hospital and in NGOs and stuff. Uh, it, it's quite a poor and, uh, 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 and and quite underdeveloped country, so we're working on that. And the other arm of our work was uh, Christian work, especially with students within the campus. Uh, and so we're doing these things. And on both fronts, we experienced so much failure. All right, now don't, don't get me wrong. You know there, there were points of success. There were things that I'm hugely grateful for. We saw God doing some amazing things through some amazing people. And I look back at this one year and I think this was the best year of my life. And I'm so grateful that that I got to go through that experience. But at the same time, a lot of our work was marked by failure of doing something and then seeing it not bear fruit. And um, I know that that just Eats away at the soul of people who went in with a lot of good intentions. Like there's one person that we lived with, uh, Louis and I lived with. Um, let's call her uh, Janelle. That's not her real name. So Janelle was uh, was an uh, was an ICU physician. So that means that she helped. She ran the ICU, the intensive care department in the UK and other places. And she came to this hospital in Sierra Leone. It's a 300 bed hospital. One of the one of the worst places in the world to be to get sick. It's got like the highest rate of like uh, women dying uh, because of childbirth in the whole world. It's got it's the WHO, the World Health Organization, ranks it as kind of like the bottom in the world in terms of uh, uh, in terms of the quality of the health system. The life expectancy at birth is about 48, 49. For comparison, Singapore is probably like 84, 85 around now. So it's awful place to be, right? She gave up a lot in order to go there, and day in, day out work to change things in the ICU, you know, to make things better, to make the care that we deliver to the patients better. And she literally kind of gave her blood for this, you know. There'd be times when patients would come in and they'd need a blood transfusion. There just wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't really a blood blank. And so she would kind of give her own blood, right? They'd go to the patient and then she'd kind of get up and continue work, you know. So just amazing commitment, and when we first arrived, right, she we, we noticed that she was eating like, you know, two meals per day. Morning, she'd like eat and go, Nighttime time, she'd come like, eat a sandwich or something, smoke her cigarettes, drink her, her beer. Not very healthy love. but anyway, she'd do that and then she'd go to sleep and, and just repeat and rewind, you know. Um, it just took a huge chunk out of her, and yet, at the same time, she was faced with people not complying, her stuff being stolen, her being treated with a lot of disrespect, Being taken advantage of, you know, all the things that she does, people take that from her, Uh, and at the at the the end of the day, the patients that she's trying to help, right, that they are actually not getting any better because the other staff that she's working with are corrupt or stealing money from the patients or or doing stuff like that. So, hugely painful, hugely discouraging for her, and um, we, we, we we faced you know similar kinds of things, but maybe not as intense in our in our own work. And apart from, you you don't need to go to West Africa to to, to see instances of people doing work and being disappointed by it and being tempted to give up on that. Um, Is there a burden that you have given up on? Something that you felt God wanted you to do and you began, right? You didn't just put it off. You decided, I will try this. You know, I feel I've been called, I will do this. And you do it and you fail, you're faced with opposition, you're filled with discouragement, you're faced with people writing letters to other people, telling people that are wrong. And because of that, you, you step back, you slow down, you stop, and then you think, maybe I didn't hear from God, maybe that isn't my burden, maybe I just need to wait for God to show me again one more time. Or maybe God doesn't speak in this way and call us to do these kind of things, you know, it's, it, it, it is just my imagination. Is there a burden that you've given up Have you felt disappointed by the fruit of your ministry? Now, for many of you, those of you who are in leadership positions now and here, maybe the cell group leaders, the, the small section leaders and all of that, um, if you've been doing this for a short time, you know I pray that you haven't felt this, that you haven't felt this disappointment. But uh, for some of us who have been doing this kind of thing for a while, uh, we, we experience disappointment. And maybe you need to be aware that sometimes that can happen. I pray it doesn't happen to you, but sooner or later most of us do experience that kind of discouragement. And so it can mean being a cell group leader and day in and day out for weeks and months and years, you prepare for your cell group, you get ready everything, you put a lot of your heart and your work into it, you pray for your cell group members, you go in there, all of your time that week has been consumed preparing for the cell group, and then nobody shows up. Or people come and nobody's prepared anything, and then you feel like, ah, oh, this is the time I want to like tear their hair out, but you can't. Right. Or maybe you're a worship leader, you know, for a small group or, or for the whole church and you've practiced and you've worked and you've put all of these hidden hours into preparing to try and move the congregation into being able to experience what it is to, to worship God and in your mind you, you have the selection of songs and you think everybody will be kind of slowly floating up off the ground as they sing but then when you come and you get started actually like half of them are like checking their cell phones and the other ones are asleep and that can be extremely discouraging or maybe you're a drummer right and then you drum like everything fine and then just this one place where you go katung, where it's supposed to go katung, and then after that everybody comes and asks you about that one point where you lost that rhythm There are so many sources of discouragement, of being disappointed by the, the fruit of your spirit. Now, um, there, there are a few of us that I know kind of preach over here. And I, I, I know what this is like. It's extremely painful as well sometimes. Um, when I was in Bible school back in like 2011, 2012, I remember this conversation with this other friend of mine who was in Bible school at the same time. And he he was actually a pastor of a church. And we were going through the same module on hermeneutics, on how to interpret the Bible. That's the stuff that some of you attended, remember? Uncle Shing's talk on, you know, how to interpret the Bible, uh, the uh, historical context, literary context, uh, all of those things. So it is that, but in a whole module that we were doing, right? And so it's a lot of work, a lot of heart that goes into it. And as we were doing it, I remember one time discussing with him, and then he tells me, Raj, this is all just a waste of time, you know? And I asked, what? What do you mean by that? And he says, you know, there are these times when I've spent weeks preparing for this sermon, you know, in prayer and in study and looking up all these references and making sure that I'm interpreting the, the scripture carefully and rightly, you know, and, and making that something that, that would be true as well as, you know, uh, as some engaging for the, for, the particip- for the audience. And then I do that, and then I deliver it. Nobody cares. And then next week, this guy, the visiting guy, comes to talk. And then he's got absolutely nothing to say. But then he tells this the story of the, somebody you know has experienced it. But he tells the story of like this dog which is friends with a goose. And then they went on a mountain. And then after that, everybody's like, "Wow, good sermon!" Ah, huh? because it got nice story one. Um, and so all of this work that you put in actually it doesn't really count for much because what they want is the story of the dog and the goose, right? Um, and, and that's painful because the fruit of your sermon, I see a nod. At least one person understands what that's like. Yeah? So, the, the fruit of ministry, fruit of labor, and not just in these high-profile ministries, right? We've got people week in, week out for years, some of them longer than you've been alive, who are doing ushering, who are making sure that the communion gets here when we need it, who we'll make sure that the AV plays the videos when we want to and comes up. the the time it's supposed to. The people who week upon week upon week come here in their after hours to practice and play the instruments for us. Those who prepare the slides. There are are others I'm sorry I'm, I'm forgetting you but there are people who have poured their lives into the ministry of the church making it work. And for some of you you will feel like this. You will feel that nobody knows nobody cares and maybe what I do doesn't even matter because whether I do it or I don't, you know, it's, it's the same outcome. There's no fruit in this ministry. And if you're feeling that way, I want you to remember Zerubbabel and Jeshua. Remember that the fruit of Zerubbabel's ministry, and this you'll see a little bit more on in the, the later chapters, in Ezra 7 to 10, Nehemiah, the fruit of their ministry was imperfect, it was incomplete, it was impermanent. As great as that celebration was, right after they had rebuilt the temple This is the temple that they rebuilt, this is Zerubbabel's temple It's probably quite similar in size actually to Solomon's temple But not as grand, it wasn't as fancy, not as good artistry and stuff like that and it was never indwelt by God's uh, you know, manifest presence in the way that, that Solomon's temple was. And it wasn't really anywhere near the size of Herod's temple, the, the, this, the extension of the second temple that happened a couple of, couple of hundred years later. And it was nowhere near as fantastic as the temple that was prophesied in Ezekiel, which is humongous, right? It was so small compared to those things. And it wasn't just the issue of the temple, the physical rebuilding that, that, uh, that Zerubbabel was able to do. Remember after Zerubbabel rebuilds and everybody worships and everybody's cool, right? Everybody's been restored to God. Three chapters later, you get Ezra coming in and he looks at the state of Israel. And what does he say? As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled my hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles. And now, O God, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. Verse 15, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. There is a great revival, there is a great restoration in Zerubbabel's time but it was impermanent it was incomplete it was partial so what do you say when you see Zerubbabel and he comes up to you and he says all that stuff all that being moved by God's Spirit, going, trying, failing, being broken hearted and then be having hope given back to me again after 18 years and after that rebuilding and completing despite opposition all of that counts for nothing because a little while later, the people fell away again. What, what do you say to him? And part of what we say to him is what even the New Testament describes as the fact that every restoration, every move of God's Spirit, every time we do what's right in restoring the, the people of God, in some ways it's a, it's a shadow. In some ways, it's an image. In some ways, it's, it's something that looks forward towards the time when God will restore things perfectly and permanently. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 4 to 5. Now, if he were on earth, this is if Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. So what they do in the temple, it's a mere copy It's a mere shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. And so Moses sees something that's real and true and perfect and eternal. He looks at that and he constructs an image of that, a shadow of that, a tent that resembles that. And a similar idea is expressed using different imagery, different words in a couple of other places in the Scriptures in the New Testament. Paul writes about it in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 10-12, as the fact that now we who are indwelt by the Spirit, our own lives, it still is only as if we're seeing Jesus as in a mirror dimly. Now we see in part, then we shall see completely. It will be perfect and true at that time. Uh, in Romans chapter eight, he says, "Now we who have the Spirit, we experience the first fruits of those spirits, but we wait, we groan, until that time when He will restore us. We are awaiting the adoption as sons." In the book of Second Corinthians, he talks about how we who have got the first fruits of the Spirit, it's as if we are still just naked, and we are awaiting to be further clothed, to be further swallowed up by life without a hint of death, without a hint of disappointment, without a hint of sickness. That day will come, but until that day comes, as we're building something that's imperfect, incomplete, impermanent, just because it's imperfect doesn't mean that it doesn't have any worth. Because as long as it's a shadow of God's ultimate restoration, the shadow of God's ultimate temple that he will restore at the end of time. Every little ministry, every little thing that we do know is of immeasurable worth and it is precious. And so if you've prepared for that Bible study and zero people come and nobody knows about it, does it count for nothing? It counts for everything because if you've been faithful to God, in those hidden hours, that counts for God and that's precious. If you prepared a sermon and everybody falls asleep in the middle of it, because you've been faithful to the word of God and to the proclamation of that word of God, that is precious. If you've served for years or for months, or you have tried, you have put your shoulder against what you thought was your burden for the church. And for whatever reason, it failed. For whatever reason, it didn't come out the way that you wanted it to. Does that mean nothing? Is that useless? It's precious. Because for that period of time, you were faithful to God. And that's a shadow of God's ultimate restoration, ultimate work at the end of time. And so, once again, I'm just going to put these questions up. Is there a burden that you feel you've failed in carrying out? Is there a burden you've given up on? Have you felt disappointed by your ministry, by what you have seen as the fruit of your heart and your time and your labor and your love into the church? If that's you, then remember Zerubbabel remember Joshua they failed 18 years they failed and God's spirit through the prophets comes back and says you are the ring on my finger, it is through you I will restore the people of God even if it's impermanent for that season it is you and your work is immeasurably precious I'm going to ask uh, Pastor John to come and uh, pray with us.
1: Can you get the keyboard? We're going to close, but shall we all just rise? And let's just bow our heads and think about what has been shared. Let's all bow our heads and come before the Lord. Isaiah 49 verse 4 says, But I said I have laboured to no purpose, I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And I just want to pray for anyone who has felt disappointed in ministry or discouraged. And if that's you, as, as all our eyes are closed, maybe we can just lift our hands to the Lord. And I'll pray and Father, we look to you as the God who is completely in control. God, you are the God who reigns in heaven. And Father, we thank you that we do not need to fix our eyes on the fruit, but Jesus, we fix our eyes on you. You are the author and perfecter of our faith. And so God, we look to you as the God of all faithfulness, God, you see every effort and and work that we put in, regardless of the fruit that human eyes may see. And so, God, we surrender all our labor and our work and our ministry and our effort to you. And Jesus, we look forward to that day when you come again and you perfectly restore all things so father for anyone who has been disappointed in ministry or is tired or is weary father would you refresh and renew hearts and help us to fix our eyes on Jesus God we commit ourselves into your hands we thank you we say we love you you're a God of faithfulness and you're a God who is always good in Jesus name we pray Amen Amen God bless you we'll see you again next week